Well, grace and peace to you all. It's good to see everyone in person. It's wonderful to see everyone. You can only go so much time looking at a camera for so long, but so wonderful to see each and every one of you today. Well, my name is Stephen Marins, and I have the privilege of serving as part of the Harbor Pastoral staff, if you're visiting for the first time, and I'm also the church planter of Sevilla Chapel, a bilingual English-Spanish missional community. You know, and I've been uh, actually following the series that we've been going through these past couple of weeks, uh, Only God, quite passionately, because it's its focus is actually on one of the, my most favorite books of the Bible, the book of Acts. And of course, I'm biased towards the book of Acts because I am actually church planting. It's my church planting journey. So there is no hiding that. Uh, but when I was given the biblical texts, I was eager for today to come because this is actually my favorite chapter in the book, Acts chapter 17. And that just goes to show you just how well Jeff and Mark knew me. You know, they, they looked at the text, they're like, this is definitely for Stephen. <laughs> well, Jeff spoke on the Bereans and the authority of the Word of God last week. And today we read of the continuation of the Apostle Paul's journey in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. But before we jump into the text, into the nitty-gritty, it's the Nacho Libre reference. You know, I'm Latin American. Never mind. Bad joke, I know. Uh, let me set the stage for us. When was the last time you walked into a museum? If you're a lot like me, you'll always find something that grabs your attention or something that fills you with awe. Regardless of what kind of museum you've been to, the general concept is the same. There is a recollection of history and highlights of particular milestones. There are many different aspects of history that we could look at, at many world-altering events, but for this morning, I want to look back at some of the natural discoveries by mankind, and I'm just going to go through a few. Nikola Tesla, a Serbian-American engineer and physicist, discovered the rotating magnetic field of the Earth. He also invented the Tesla coil, which is actually the foundation to wireless technology used in radio tech, along with alternating current electricity. It's what you have in your home, which remains the world's preeminent power system since the 20th century. You might also happen to know that he lived in the same generation as Albert Einstein. And how could we possibly not mention Einstein? Well, Einstein, in the year 1905, discovered that energy and mass, or matter, were the same thing but in different forms, articulated by his famous formula E equals mc squared. And the impact he had on scientific achievement was enormous thanks to his contributions, such as the quantum theory of light, on the existence of atoms and his theory of special relativity, that length and time are not fixed and that they depend on the observer's frame of reference. If you don't really get that, check out Christopher Nolan's movie Interstellar, and there's a perfect example of that. We can also turn to Mary Curry, who was the first woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Curry is credited with discovering radium and polonium and contributing significantly towards finding treatments for cancer. To put it simply, she coined the term radioactivity, discovered two radioactive elements which resulted in her death. In fact, her, her, bur her burial place and her actual body today, her bones, are actually radioactive. And she brought x-rays to the front lines of World War I. And there's, of course, how can I not mention a more recent name, Stephen Hawking. After Einstein's prediction of black holes in 1916, which accompanied his general theory of relativity, 
Hawking discovered in the year 1974 that black holes emitted radiation that could be detected by special instrumentation. And it was regarded as one of the greatest modern scientific achievements because it helped us understand how the cosmic universe works in regards to the realm of physics. Now, I could go on, but these four snapshots will suffice. Now, let me assure you, there's no pop quiz at the end of the sermon. You don't have to know all of the details. Not even I know all the details of all these theories. I was never gifted in the empirical sciences. I loved it. I have a, I'm fascinated by it, but unfortunately, God did not give me that giftedness of mind. But in spite of my limited understanding, I can appreciate the discoveries by these gifted, learned individuals. But aside from their significant discoveries and contributions, there is something else that they share in common. Their disbelief in the God of the Bible. Nikola Tesla was a pantheist, which means that the belief that God and matter or creation are one, as was Albert Einstein, as a matter of fact. Mary Curry was an agnostic. She didn't really care whether God existed or not or whether it was even relevant. And Stephen Hawking was an atheist. Of course, I use the past tense because their disbelief no longer persists in the present, not because they're no longer alive, but because now they do know the truth. Such incredible intelligence as it relates to the empirical sciences, such an elevated grasp of the constitution of the material universe, and yet so disconnected from its creator and the general revelation or the message he makes clear through it. This brings us back to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34, who upon leaving Berea was brought to the Greek city of Athens. Let us read verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. It should be of no surprise that the ancient Greeks were one of the most proliferous with their idol-making and worship practices. And no doubt, Paul, being a Roman citizen, was actually aware of his idolatry before arriving here at this destination. But his Jewish background, and most relevantly his Christian convictions, his Christian loyalty to Christ, elicited a very strong reaction when he saw the extent of this idolatry with his own eyes. What did he see exactly? We will get to that shortly. But our imagination can fill us in. Temples built in honor of the Greek gods and goddesses. Merchants selling idols wherever you go, of every shape and size, as to as many people as possible of the Greek pantheon. This was disturbing to Paul, as it would be to us, because he saw how easily ensnared the people were in worshiping the creation instead of the creator. But this disturbance was not a motivation to move away, to isolate himself, to not speak to anyone. Instead, it was motivation to engage with the Athenians, with the Greeks, who were openly spiritual in their beliefs and in their practices. In other words, Paul saw a great opportunity to share the gospel. Well, the text reads in verse 17 that Paul first reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, which was his custom wherever he went, and with devout persons who were likely Gentiles or locals who wanted to learn more about the Jewish God. And he then reasoned in the marketplace with whoever was there. And while men of all different philosophical schools were present, and you can name them quite a lot, verses 18 and 19 mentions two specific schools, the Epicureans and the Stoics. I'll give you a very quick sort of Wikipedia summary so you don't have to go into the depths of it. 
The Epicureans were a school founded by the Greek philosopher Epicurus, which held to the belief that pleasure was the chief end of life. You know, in our modern day, it would probably be like YOLO, you only live once, that sort of philosophy. Well, to be specific, the, it was the pleasure of tranquility, of being free from pain, disturbing passions and fear, most particularly the fear of death, to be totally free and to be and totally immersed in pleasure. Well, the Epicureans also, um, they didn't deny the existence of the gods, but they did not pay homage to them. That is to say, they didn't worship them. Instead, they believed that the gods were uninterested and irrelevant to the world of men. So there were Epicureans there whom Paul was speaking to and reasoning with. The Stoics, on the other hand, was founded by Cypriot Zeno and took their name from the painted stoa or the portico where he would often teach from. And they believed that the chief end of man, that the purpose of man, was to live consistently with nature, that man was himself self-sufficient, elevating the rational faculty of mind, that he was his own god. And to put it simply, they were pantheists because nature was their God and it was nature that they wanted to live consistently with as if they were to be one with nature. Well, they would use the term the world soul. Sort of a bit of a philosophic mysticism there. Well, the Epicureans and the Stoics would have often debated between themselves as would have any other philosophical school in ancient Greece. But they were in agreement about one thing. The message of Paul was like foolishness to their wise learning. Some said that Paul was nothing but a babbler who did not know what he was trying to say, mainly because they could not understand him. Not that Paul was not a clear communicator. He's a better communicator than I am. The gospel was just so foreign to the Greek religion. It was just so foreign to their culture. Others believed Paul was preaching multiple gods from faraway lands, of Jesus and the resurrection. Well, the resurrection, they thought, was some sort of goddess. It was clear that those who heard him were unwilling to believe, but they did at least desire to learn more about Paul's message. And so they invited him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a respected institution. Some say this is where Socrates was tried. And the invitation given to Paul was customary for foreign teachers, for those who come in with strange teachings. To put it simply, by having Paul speak at the Areopagus, Established Greek lectures could evaluate its character, the character of its message. It would be like presenting the teachings of the gospel to various professors today of the humanities in order to be critically evaluated so that they would stand as judge over the message. Well, Paul accepted the invitation, as we see in verses 19 to 21, and what follows in verses 22 to 31 is his address. There's a lot that is said here. So I'm going to break it down in a simple and orderly manner so we can follow along. In verse 22, Paul makes his observation clear to them that the Athenians are a very religious people. While the Athenians would have taken this as a compliment, which was not actually allowed in the procedure of the Areopagus, you weren't allowed to compliment those who were judging you, uh, Paul meant it as, actually as a charge. It was a charge against them. He was saying they were guilty of idolatry. So he didn't mean it in a positive form. Well, how did he arrive at this observation? He explains in verse 23 that he observed many of their religious objects. They're objects of idolatrous worship. But there was something that caught his attention. Something that the Athenians were right about. 
There was an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. You see, the Athenians were in part afraid that they might offend some God that they knew nothing about. But they also sensed that there was a God that was unlike any of their gods, unlike anything comparable to their Greek pantheon. There are Zeus and Ares and all these different gods and goddesses, whether in Greece or outside of Greece. They recognized there was a God far beyond all of these, but they just didn't know who. They couldn't arrive at the truth of the matter as to who this God was because their sinful disposition, their sinful direction, enslaved their minds to worship aspects of creation. They couldn't take their eyes off creation. Well, what they knew in part, but not in whole, Paul took this as an opportunity to explain. And to paraphrase, Paul was saying, you do not know this God, but you know that he exists and that he is nothing like your gods. Therefore, since I do know, let me explain. Starting with verse 24, Paul begins his gospel presentation. Before we look at that, let me first mention that Paul here is not speaking as he would to the Jews. He knows that the Greeks know nothing about the Hebrew Scriptures, And so in order to communicate the gospel to them clearly, he communicates the biblical message, biblical truth, in a way that they would understand. It's contextualized to their culture. He would even go as far as to even reference their own poets. He begins by explaining that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who stands behind all of creation, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he depended on them. On the contrary, God the Creator is God the Omnipresent. He's present everywhere. He is the self-sufficient God. He does not depend on anything or anyone. That is what Paul is communicating to the Athenians in verses 24 to 25. In the two verses that follow, verses 26 to 27... Paul explains that not only did this God create man, he also breathed life into him, beginning with Adam. And upon creating him, God established the law order, or to put that more simply, the parameters for his living in such a way that man might know of God through created order. Is this getting complicated? Let's give you a simple illustration. A goldfish for example, lives just fine in his fish tank. However, the moment you remove uh, the fish from its environment where it can live and thrive, what happens? It begins to wobble helplessly until it dies a slow death. Why? Because it's been removed from its environment. We live in an environment that has been carefully created and fine-tuned for us to live in and thrive. And it's been created in such a way that we cannot deny that there is a God behind it all. Now, God might seem far off, explains Paul in verses 27 to 28. But he's not. He's not the kind of God that deists believe in, deists with the D, that is, a God who created a magnificent work and left it to its own devices without a care of what happens to it or within it. No, God is just as much near as to when he created everything in the beginning, in six days, because he gives us life and he sustains everything. 
Elsewhere in the New Testament, we read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The same spoken word that brought creation into existence from nothing is the word that sustains everything. Now, we'll come back to that passage in its fullness, but to not get sidetracked now, Paul says that just as he gave us life, just as God gave us life and sustains everything, he also created man in his image and in his likeness. Paul's citing of pagan philosophers and poets here does not validate their belief systems. You know, we might say, oh, Paul is referring to their philosophers. Maybe he agrees with their philosophers. Maybe he's, he, he seems to be sympathetic with what they're teaching altogether. That is not the case. He is simply extracting truth from their systems of error, like a surgeon who carefully extracts a healthy organ from a dead organ donor. This notion of being created in the image of God is important. This is crucial to Paul's gospel presentation. Let me explain why. If gold, silver, and stone are inferior to the human person, what makes us think, or what made them think, that God might be inferior as well when he created us in his image? Think about it. If a man were to be in a sinking boat and he had to choose between saving himself or, the, or, or sinking with his golden treasure, what would he choose? A sane man, a man who can reason clearly, would value his life over the gold because he knows that he is far more valuable than any wealth he might find. And if he dies with his gold, well, he's not going to be able to enjoy it now, is he? If we are therefore created in God's image, then God cannot be reduced to such things. He is far beyond created material, far beyond the art and imagination of man. And that is what Paul is saying in verse 29. You know, having made clear then who this God is, Paul then explains in verses 30 to 31 that the time of overlooked ignorance is over. Before, the Greeks had no one that could proclaim the truth to them in its fullness. Now the time had come for all to know the truth. What was this truth? That we are all sinners before a, before a holy God, having broken his law. And because we're all sinners, we all need to repent of our sins. Why? Because if we do not turn away from our sin, then judgment is coming. And that judgment will be swiftly executed by the one who God has appointed. To whom must we turn to then? Jesus, the Christ. But Paul does not get that far yet. He first says in verse 31 that we know this one to be God's appointed because he raised himself from the dead. There's the resurrection. You can feel it. You can sense it. Paul is just at the cusp of saying it's Jesus Christ. But he does not because he can't. He is actually rudely interrupted by the teachers gathered around in the Areopagus. As verses 32 to 33 read, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. Well, that certainly seemed defeating. You had this huge case, this forensic case, going from creation to Christ. The Greeks would have known that Paul was speaking about a man named Jesus anyways, because that was the reason why he was in the Areopagus, to explain things. But they balked at the idea of his bodily resurrection. Why? For the Greeks, the created body was a prison for the human soul. To be resurrected was to be re-imprisoned. 
And this is what Socrates believed and why he welcomed his death by drinking poison, if you're not familiar with that story. And his student, Plateau, uh, would cement this notion in ancient Greek thought. But Paul's gospel presentation was not fruitless. He did not labor in vain, because as we read in verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Arpagites, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now, we live in different times than the ancient Greeks did. We're no longer asking whether the composition of reality is made up of earth, water, air, and fire, as per Aristotle. Nowhere far beyond that now. Today, we talk about atoms, electrons, neutrons, protons, quartz, molecular compositions, and more. And while we know a great deal about the subatomic, we also know a great deal about the expansive universe itself. To behold the vastness of the universe and all its varying complexities, uh, even down to the subatomic, and walk away thinking that it all came about by random probability, by chance, is as foolish as believing that an idol made out of gold created man and all things in creation. And yet most of the learned men of our time have fallen to the lie and have exchanged the worship of the Creator for creation, as Paul so aptly describes in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 to 23. When I was at the Canadian Rockies a few years ago with my wife Cindy, I remember arriving in Canmore, just outside the provincial park. It was about 2 in the morning. We stood outside and looked up at the night sky and at the dark shadows that towered above us. We didn't see clearly uh, the, 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 the mountains yet. And it was in the middle of February, so it was minus 45 degrees at the time. And for a Latino such as myself, that is murder. So we did not stay out there for long. But later that morning, when we woke up in our hotel beds, nice and warm, we pulled back the curtains and we saw for ourselves, for the very first time, the beauty and grandeur of the Canadian Rockies. Now, if you've been there, you'll know what it's like to have seen that for the first time. Pictures don't do it justice. Well, you know, I fell in love with the Rockies, with the mountain range. I even said to my wife, I wanted to move over there. She didn't agree with that idea because of the cold. And as we went in, I was continually reminded of the God who brought all these things into being. As we just drove in throughout that provincial park, just reflecting on God's amazing creative work. And just as God created all things, so does he sustain all things. Again, we turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who is this he? Jesus, the Son of God, the one who took on human flesh. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus was there in the beginning, intimately involved with the creation of the cosmos. And it is Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power. We tend to confine Jesus to the image we are given in the Gospels. But we must see Jesus for who he is in the context of all of Scripture. And it is this Jesus... The Jesus who brought this world into being, the Jesus who sustains all of creation, that calls all men to repent of their sins. Though creation was declared to be good, it had become tainted by mankind's sin, beginning with Adam. And Jesus came in the flesh in order to redeem that which had become fallen. 
We look at this world and we can tell it does not look as it ought to look. It looks as in need of redemption. Well, a time of judgment is coming. Paul made that clear, and it's, it's still true today. But there's also a time of renewal. And both come from the hands that were pierced on the cross. If you have yet to turn from your sin today, whether you're here in person or you're viewing online, if you have yet to turn to Jesus as your Lord, that is as to say your King and your Savior, do so today. We are not promised tomorrow. And for those of us who have turned to Jesus, the Christ, the appointed one of God, let me give you a word of assurance as you labor to share the good news of salvation. Whether you're out in the harvest, sharing the gospel with strangers, or sharing Jesus within your own network of families and friends and co-workers, there will be times of discouragement, times of difficulty and testing. I've had those circumstances where I felt like I was Paul being laughed out of the Areopagus. But let me assure you, our laboring is not in vain. Our work is not in vain. Our sowing is not in vain. Luke, the traveling companion of Paul who wrote the book of Acts, shows us in today's passage the three most common reactions that people have when hearing the gospel. To use a modern illustration, think of a traffic light. You know, there are three lights, and these three lights correspond to the three reactions. A red light is when a person bluntly rejects the gospel and wants nothing more of it. That's fine. You move on. A yellow light is when a person is not willing to turn and trust in Jesus, but is willing at least to listen and learn more. Well, those people are worth following up with. And a green light is when a person readily turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus. Irregardless as to which of the three reactions you might encounter as you share the good news in your daily life, remind yourself of this. Each gospel share is a seed that is sown. And it may be a harvest that someone else will reap at another time. And glory to God for that. Well, in closing, let me encourage you. Let me encourage you as we look at this passage to look up in more awe at what God has done and continues to do this day. The one who created all things and sustains all things. That our awe might be expressed in the form of worship. And may we live deeply in community and rooted in God's word as Paul succeeded to cultivate with those who did turn and trust there at the end in Athens. And may we lead out, sharing the gospel boldly, because the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. And the shameless plug on my end, if you want to join a church plant in need of labors, come speak to me later about Sevilla Chapel. Let us pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we first and foremost thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us. You are a holy God, and your standard is so high and so great and so perfect that we cannot hope to ever fulfill those demands. But praise be unto you that by your grace you sent your Son to pay the sin debt that we owe, that all of us who turn away from our sins and trust in you in faith might be forgiven and also redeemed. You invite us into your family. You adopt us as your children when we were formerly your enemies. And so we say, Lord God, thank you. But Lord, we also pray for those, Lord, that we do share the gospel with. May those seeds fall in fertile soil. May they produce a bountiful harvest. And Lord, we know that as we're sowing in one field, we're harvesting in another. And there is a great need for more laborers. 
Lord, would you raise up to be those laborers? Would you raise all of us up to be those laborers in, in, in this field, wherever we might be, whether it's at home, whether it's amongst the family, whether it's at work or in school or in the academia, Lord, that you would just raise us up and give us the words of which to speak clearly the gospel so people may turn and trust in you. Would you help us to see that all the work that we do is not in vain, but in fact will produce fruit in generations and generations to come. And Lord, we pray for this church. Thank you that we are gathered here today. Thank you that we are ramping up all our ministry wings. Thank you, Lord, that we're going back out and being emphasizing very strongly sharing the gospel both in our own networks but also going out into the harvest onto the streets. We pray, may we see a bountiful harvest. May we see the fruit of our labor. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you do. And may you send us out, Lord, encouraged, empowered, feeling like Paul going out into the world of Athens, ready to share with his gospel and to give the reason for the hope that we believe in, knowing that you, O Lord, will be at work through everything we do and everything we say, that you might be glorified and you might be exalted. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, as I mentioned, being more in awe of God, I do want to say how, you know, in terms of expressing that as a form of worship, there is uh, a worship night tomorrow. It'll be outdoors, if I'm not mistaken. I believe Josh told me that. So join us for a time of worship to lift God up in our praise, in our worship, to look up in more awe of him. And it'll be tomorrow at 7 p.m., I believe that's correct. All right, so hope to see you there. Well, Harbor, it was wonderful to see you all, and I look forward to seeing you again next week as well. We are sent.